Hello, Acid Horizon listeners. Summer is upon us, and we have some exciting episodes coming up. We are going to be doing an episode on the work of Giorgio Agamben. Also, we have a tentative date with Dr. Gregory Sadler of Gregory Sadler fame. We will be reading a section from Fanged Numina with him. That will be coming in June or July. Also in the clip are some episodes on disability, queer theory, another episode on Deleuze and Gattari, and also stay tuned for some new episodes of Inner Experience that we have planned. We are going to go back into the work of Wilhelm Reich and talk about his theory of Orgone. Also, another episode on psychoanalysis and dream analysis. Exciting stuff coming your way. In the meantime, today we have Jeremy R. Smith for our discussion of Francois Laruelle's work on non-philosophy and the notion of philosophy as the capital form of thought. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today, we are joined by Jeremy R. Smith, co-editor of Oraxium, a journal of non-philosophy, a translator, and PhD candidate at the Center for the Study of Theory and Criticism at Western University. In today's episode, we are going to be discussing an essay by the French philosopher Francois Laruelle, entitled Non-Philosophy as Heresy, with reference to Jeremy's own article which comments upon this essay. Together, we're going to try and reach an understanding of at least the basic concepts, ideas, and innovations of Laruelle's often complicated work. And Jeremy will be helping us get to grips with all of it. Thank you, Jeremy, for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I think the first question on our mind, and perhaps the minds of many of our listeners, is what is non-philosophy? Like, what is Laruelle doing with this concept, and uh, how does it differ from any concept of philosophy uh, hitherto existing? It's a very good question. Well, the very first thing that I want to say is that non-philosophy is, of course, not philosophy in its traditional and conservative practice or its implementation, whether it be in uh, an academic or disciplinary form, or more or less a way of thinking in terms of the tradition of philosophy itself. Rather, it is another pragmatics or use of philosophy that is determined in the last instance by the human. In philosophy and non-philosophy, if I remember the page number, I believe it's like page uh, 21, it's actually 28. Non-philosophy is described as the authentic, not alienated concept of popular philosophy and anti-vulgarization. The traditionally highest usage of language, its usage of logos, its philosophical pragmatics, is its exploitation in accordance with a set of decisions or restrictive a priori that form the capital of the logos. A non-philosophical pragmatics lifts this limitation, redistributes the available material according to a rule which is no longer that of economy or rarity. Philosophy can only really become for all or popular by becoming non-philosophy. And I will argue that non-philosophy is not philosophy in its classical or traditional forms, it is human philosophy. And what is meant by that? Is Laruelle trying to head off a certain form of transhumanism? Is he thinking the humanist project in different terms? What's nuanced about that? Well, one of the questions that I would ask in return is, have we ever had a concept of the human that is not 
coextensive with or seen as a contrary to philosophy. But one of these statements that's opened up in his 1985 book called A Biography of Ordinary Man or Five Theorems, which he lists out as describing a way of thinking about the human or what he calls ordinary man as really existent and distinct from the existence of the world. So this contradicts apparently all the philosophy. For him, he has like a project that is spanning 50 years of research and split up into different five different periods of his work. And a biography of Ordinary Man is part of this period known as Philosophy II, which is where he kind of introduces non-philosophy as a pragmatics of philosophy that is determined in the last instance by the human. But here, one should note that from Nietzsche, his project is trying to distance himself from it. Um, so in the gay science, there is an aphorism there. Aphorism 346, I believe. I'm at that stage in my PhD where I could just memorize numbers and pages and locations and stuff. And it's kind of a nightmare. <laughs> I've been there with some papers. Yeah. Yeah. So it's book five of the gay science aphorism 346. This is Nietzsche. He writes, the whole pose of man against the world, of man as a world negating principle, of man as the measure of the value of things, as judge of the world, who in the end places existence itself upon his scales and finds it wanting. We laugh as soon as we encounter the juxtaposition of man and world. Separated by the sublime presumption of the little word and. And for Laurel, he's trying to break from that notion of and. That seeks to combine, make the human coextensive with uh, the world, with these universals that are history, language, sexuality, power. Whether or not man is the contrary to them or is nevertheless inseparable from them is the goal of non-philosophy, to strive to think about humanity as radically distinct from these kinds of universals in the first place to break the and. If I can ask a, a question there, what's the motivation there for Lowell? What's the reasoning behind why he thinks we ought to be able to perhaps, you know, conceive of humanity, but separately from these universals, as he calls them, power and sexuality, etc.? Why, why, why should we do that? So we should be able to do that because we need to radically think the human as they are, as who we are without having some sort of connection to these universals in the first place. So in A Biography of Ordinary Man, and I, and I, I really want to plug this book because I feel like this is, this is Laura Wells' magnum opus more than anything else. Um, the idea of the rigorous science of man that he opens up this book with is that we've never had a real conception of the human without these kinds of humanist, metahuman, let's say, or even philosophical conceptions of the human. The idea that uh, there is the subhuman, the inhuman, the more than human, the overman, there's never a concept of the human qua human that is irreducible to that real kernel of reality. There's only a mixture or a blend, um, a parallelism between anthropos and logos. And it usually is the logos that is overdetermining the anthropos. Why is that the case? I think that if you looked at 
for instance, this is this is actually on page six. The way in which we understand the world, it's only through philosophy. We are pedagogically and let's say uh, uh, we are procreated to be born philosophers, to be born as philosophers, to think of our connection to the world insofar as in order to be able to understand ourselves, it's always in relation to whatever is not ourselves. It's always in relation to these universals. It's always in relation to um, the philosophical uh, unitary myth is what he calls it, which is at once the counter mythology and counter sophistry. It is the way in which we learn who, how to be who we are. Pedagogy is an example of this. If you look at the pedagogical device or a, a way in which we operate learning, you have to free yourself from the cave and then you return back to the cave to draw out those who are without reason. So it's as though like this whole apparatus, this whole learning procedure is nevertheless philosophical. This notion of the human is fascinating insofar as it's not necessarily La Ruelle attempting to find some sort of um, imminent truth in the human being. That doesn't seem to be what I'm, I'm getting here, but rather attempting to uh, free ourselves from, let's say, like philosophical technologies that m mutate our ability to get there. So the, the universals of sort of sexuality, power. Uh, so it's an attempt to, to sort of break away. It, it isn't the way we would conventionally understand humanism. Is it separated from that in any way? Because I, I, that's the, the sense I'm getting here. Yeah, it is separated from humanism. It's the, the idea of the human or man, as he would use, is, of course, a remnant of the old humanism. There's always going to be loaded baggage which, with whatever term you're going to be using in the history of thought. What matters is what you do with it. And I think what's key with regards to Laura Well, especially in an interview, um, that uh, not an interview, a debate with Luke Ferry in the, the late 80s, where he actually presented his idea of non-humanism. That's where he originated this kind of thought where he's like, if you change the meaning of words, you have to describe how you change them and in order to implement them. So if the human is treated in this way, you have to be able to articulate it in a way that is completely distinct from the old humanism, let's say. Sometimes with, with some of these concepts and with like non-philosophy as practice, Right. It seems as though you need to start to learn how to use an entire new set of academic and intellectual tools in order to navigate it. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I think that's that's adequate. And, and the introduction of the notion of, of non-humanism is helpful as well. Another introduction. <laughs> well, another introduction. There's never, ever going to be an end to these introductions, let's say. Um, <laughs> one of the problems, I'd say, is that you have to make the step towards treating this as a radically autonomous practice, really. It's like being introduced to a whole new vocabulary, a whole new way of thinking, and it cannot regress back into the same models that it's being drawn from in the first place. If that's the case, then why is it called non-philosophy? 
why would it be you can't just say non-philosophy is philosophy with extra steps that's just not true <laughs> you have to actually transform the ways in which you're doing the thought in the first place can you say a little bit more about how for Lowell, the figure of a human differs from what you might find in if we let's say uh sartre's existentialism is a humanism because on the one hand it looks like you know sartre's going to um centralize the importance of the human to uh, a new way of approaching philosophy um, and that's obviously only sort of very surface level depiction um so could you perhaps say a little bit about how when Lowell says you know about putting, putting non-philosophy sort of in the service of the human where that really where that differs, Mary and Bordeaux, where he's going to disagree with um, sort of the existentialists and so on, Sartre and sort of the old the old humanism. So I think that like the old humanism is still kind of uh, let's say philosophical. I feel like that's just going to be <laughs> a, a reduction of uh, what the old humanism is, but I feel like that's not fair. Rather. The idea of the human is always kind of related to, like I said, these universals that are found in existing philosophical motifs. But the other factor that plays into it really is that man is a wolf for man is still at the forefront of that discussion. The idea that man is something that represents an X for another man let's say, in a Lacanian way, rather than man is a man for man. There is no way of like treating man without these universals or the human without these universals co-constituting or seeing it as an opposite. So this is where this relationship to how we think of ourselves as nothing but this kind of like specter, let's say, this spectral being who is always going to be haunting from the margins. And we don't have the means immediately to use philosophy as a way to experiment with our image. Because the thing is, philosophy projects back. It uses the cave, let's say, the cave metaphor, the analogy, uh, the allegory of the cave, to project this image of man back upon ourselves, and this is who we are. But this is, this is precisely the problem, because then we're given this image of like a completely totalizing philosophy without any sort of like conjunctural way of thinking, no way of historicizing this, really. Because what Laruel seems to be trying to do, according to Ray Brassier's critique of him, is to treat philosophy as a completely totalizing thing to core rather than a specific way of philosophizing. This, I argue, is false because what Laruel talks about is Greco-unitary thought or Greco-Judaic thought, the ways in which these are operating through different matrices, such as demological difference or anthropological difference, anthropological parallelism in these early writings. In Theory of Strangers in 1995, he's talking about egozenological difference, the ways in which I can relate myself to an other and then vice versa, put myself in the place of the other or the other put in place of my shoes. These are kinds of relations that are very specific. And how we think about these relations with ourselves and with others is always treated in a philosophical way. It seems as though there is no exit. 
But really, there is because we are the exit. <laughs> we are out. We have never been in the cave. It seems very nominalist, doesn't it, Lara Wells' project here, in the sense of trying to distance man from all these kinds of universals. And I'm, I'm thinking of the critique of humanism. I mainly think of, for example, I mean, par excellence philosophical humanism for me is Feuerbach. This idea that the human isn't any one person or isn't a person at all. This essence, this collection of universals underlying a, um, a, a Christianized sort of God, just you know, an alienation of this. I'm just wondering how this sort of nominalism, if I'm correct in saying it, that there is a kind of a nominalistic notion to Clarabell in terms of the notion of man, not in terms of, of a universality, but in terms of the notion of being ordinary. Because from the, from the original sense of ordinary, it seems that this could be quite a doxistic, sort of commonsensical view of man. But I, I think I know that's something that is not probably not capturing quite what Clarabell is going for. So I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on yeah, this possibility of a nominalism of Lara Wells for, and also the, this notion of the ordinary as such. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know how to answer the nominalism approach. That's the only problem of this kind of situation because um, I, I think I think I think I'm uh, stuck at that moment uh, where um, where I'm going to say that ordinary in this instance is always going to be confused, right? Because the idea of ordinary needs to be related to what Laurawell is talking about in this book, and the problem is is that I think that a lot of people stick to the ordinary as a fetishism of the non-philosophical, right? Like the ordinary is treated as the commonplace, the everyday, the gregarious, all of these kinds of senses that never really treat the ordinary as it is. Rather, as he says, and I know the theorem, theorem is 65 of a biography of ordinary man. And you get to read it. Because I love this theorem. I love this theorem. And this is in scare quotes, okay? Human philosophy is constrained to an irreversible order of experiences from man than the world, imposed by the finitude of the one or the subject. There is an ordinality, an ordinary, more powerful than the traditional principles of reason. So if there is a nominalism, let's say, that is kind of like geared to this. It is not nominalism in the the rationalist sense, or even like more importantly, the traditional philosophical conception of this. It is a more of a scientific nominalism, let's say, one that is ordered according to ordinary man, not in the sense of like the everyday, right? Because this is also the fetishism of ordinary language philosophy. It does not actually deal with order. It only talks about what order is according to philosophy, only according to like these fetishized images of like people's relations with the world and not with people themselves. No, that more or less completely answers all my uh, concerns regarding that point. Yeah, I, I think maybe there's some clarification that I want on Laruel's conception of the everyday or the ordinary with respect to Nietzsche, because one of the ways that I have understood the the sort of valorization of the notion of ordinariness is that it is, if not fully opposed, at least in some sense counterposed against notions of the Superman, Ubermensch, right? That, that sort of thing. And in the context of this conversation, I'm trying to think of a novel way to think about philosophy in relation to the concept of non-philosophy, and the the term I'm landing on right now is just conceptual mediacy. And so the activity of philosophy, you know, 
coming from a, a Deleuzian standpoint here is that it is the creation of concepts. And if we understand philosophy to be this, and then we look at somebody like Nietzsche, for whom the notion of the everyday or the ordinary was one that sent the Greek world in one of two directions, one in sort of pining for a world beyond death and suffering, the tragic, or its embrace in the form of the Dionysian, right? And so given that, what is the role of the concept here? Is there some sense of mediation? And how is Laruel sort of sidestepping or at least not getting in the way of some sort of a priori notion of man? If there were a word like, you know, how like, Sartre or de Beauvoir would like talk about the existence of man as a freedom, for example. Well, where do those terms come in when it comes to describing the experience of what being a man is without making recourse to some sort of globalized, totalized, a priori notion of, of man or humanity? Sorry, it's a huge question. <laughs> right. That is a huge question, but I, I really appreciate the, uh, the cues. Because this is giving me a little bit of space to go from the earliest writings of Laruel to his later writings. Okay, so little history lesson. Um, so, like I said earlier, there's a there's a philosophy one through philosophy five from the 1970s to contemporary work. Most recently, 2018 was the most well, 2020 really, but whatever the case may be. A lot of writings since the 70s to today. And I would say his earliest period is focused on Nietzsche and specifically a way in which to combine two readings of Nietzsche, Deleuze and Derrida, towards a way to break from signifying chains, semiotics, dominant forms of hermeneutics, and to turn those kinds of things around the other as opposed to being. So this is kind of a Levinasian, Derridian kind of like inversion. But the problem of this period is that the generation of these things, the problematic that he's generating, is not only the description and evaluation of the multiplicity itself, but is one position in that multiplicity. Right? So that's the problem. It's one part of that multiplicity but at the same time is the description and evaluation, the generation of that multiplicity. So this kind of period of his thought, um, which comprises of 1976's Machine Textuelle, uh, Deconstruction and Libido of Writing. Then there's Le Déclin de l'Écriture, or the uh, people would like to say decline of writing. I go for twilight of writing or twi-writing, <laughs> let's say. No, let's not do that. Uh, Twilight of writing. <laughs> um, then there is, then there is uh, uh, Nietzsche contra Heidegger, um, which is from uh, 1977. Both of these books are from 1997. 1977. Um, and then Beyond the Power Principle, um, which is from 1978. But it's in 1981 with Le Principe de Minorité that this kind of breaks, that this is all connecting back to Nietzsche. And he opens up this book with a general problematic of how to think about these individuals, let's say. Nietzsche once said in The Use and Abuse of History that the individual 
constitutes a single chain that they combine to form a mountain range of humankind through millennia. It's in the, the minority principle that Laurel asks, can we define parts before and independently of the whole? Can we define differences before their repetition and independently of the idea of logos and being? Can we define minorities before the state and independently of the state? Can we define being the entity, l'étant, before being and independently of being? Can we define or think events before their staging in history? Subjects before objects and deprived of objectivity. Can we think a time without temporality? Singularities or multiplicities before any universal and independently of a universal. And they, they, he doesn't respond to any one of these in particular, but they are, he strives to give one matrix that answers all of them. And it is through this kind of notion of minorities, through this notion of determination in the last instance, of a foreclosed existence that is resistant to being captured or being coextensive, being seen as the opposite of these things, of these universals, is what he strives to do. This is fundamentally the break with Nietzsche. And I think that that's key to keep in mind, especially with regards to reading Laura Well, because if we are thinking about things that are different, how do we think these differences before putting them in a relation, putting them in a way that is going to regress back into the same model that we had previously? So I think, I hope that suffices as an answer because you've landed precisely on the problem that I'm thinking about here, which is thinking parts apart from the whole, thinking things in terms of partiality versus globality. But not only that, um, I mean, if we're going to think of the concept of man as one that's more inclined towards a concept of the other versus the concept of logos— it makes me think that the risk involved is a sort of re-territorialization of logos in the form of the other. But then if that's not what happens, then what is otherness, <laughs> right? Like, what does it mean to be an other? Because then we also have to head off the presupposition of the globality of the other or the partiality, or does otherness always come at us as a totality? Well, I will add here that Laura Wells says that man is not the other of philosophy. Philosophy is the other of man. Philosophy is made for man, not man for philosophy. So it's kind of a way of like inverting these relations, of course. And one will say, of course, we've always produced philosophy. We've always made it in our image and everything like that. And Laurel's not denying it. Rather, what happens is, is that our relation to that thing that we're producing comes to be like a sorcerer's apprentice. It comes to constitute and determine who and what we are without it being more or less our starting point where like we start from ourselves before we are determining the thought. So ordinary man in the very strictest sense of that word implies 
that there is a way to do philosophy that starts from the individual as undivided without going back. There is no reciprocity. It's irreversible. There is no uh, reciprocal exchange. And it's a transcendental condition known as the one. And of course, Kant comes into play here with regards to uh, the transcendental illusion that arises through reason. And here, reason is made to, to solve those problems. The one, on the other hand, is creating this illusion as co-constitutive of the universals that they uh, that is being produced through the one. Instead of seeking to be a part of that continuum, the continuum is instead determined by the one without any sort of uh, back and forth. It's irreversible. You're working upon those materials without those materials working upon you. And this is where the notion of a transcendental science or even a, an empirical science of philosophy comes into play. And I don't want to like bring in all of these concepts for an introduction on Laurel uh, <laughs> immediately because it's going to alienate your readers and listeners, really. But the idea is is that um, when you're you're thinking about non philosophy, it's that you are introducing democracy into thought and democracy in the sense not of like a status democracy, right? I'm talking about specifically what the human does and what the human can do. Um, it is when Laurel talks about how, you know, non-philosophy is the introduction of democracy into thought. It is no different from Althusser when he says philosophy represents the class struggle in theory. So for Laurel, this is a way of doing a, a means to popularize philosophy without it being some sort of fetishistic process of fetishizing the masses. Rather, it's fusing the masses with theory. Insofar as, as I understand it, part of the problem that Laurel is trying to work through is to think through the question of the human prior to, as you said, sort of these, these, these universals which come to, which are proposed sort of in sort of this sort of retroactive way at every single point in, in philosophical thought. Um, and it reminds me perhaps of a um, uh, problem that uh, Aquinas faces in the problem of individuation, um, because if, if every individual is simply either uh, form, matter, or composite of the two, um, the problem becomes how to uh, how to think the individual uh, soul um, prior to or uh, or extracted from these universals. It's possible that there's no relation there at all. But it's certainly something that I, I was thinking about when we were, when we were, you were talking about this problem, because you know, if you, you read some of Aquinas here, he struggles with this one. He really, really struggles with this question. Um, how, how to think the, how to think uh, the individuation of the soul for him prior to uh, distinct from, etc., cetera, um, either matter of form or the composite of the two. And I, there are obviously different views about this, just, the success of his attempt to think that through. Is there any relation here or is this even sort of a helpful way of sort of metaphorically or analogically seeing what's going on? Well, I don't know about the Aquinas uh, approach, but I think like also Simon Doan comes to mind here as well, right? Um, yeah. And I think that 
uh, with regards to individuation, you know, I, there's a very interesting line in a biography of ordinary man that I don't know if I agree with. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it just seems to be that, you know, the idea is individual individuation is impossible for Laura. Well, apparently, because it implies that one has to become who they are. Right. So this is like uh, I'll read the sentence here or really just like the the paragraph so that like it could give a sense of context. Um, So. This is a theorem 11 of Biography of Ordinary Man. The conditions of a pure thought of the individual are thus precise. If the individual is first or a priori in relation to universals. If they gather in themselves the real part excellence, if they are part before the whole, a being before being, an event before history. So this is related back to the minority principle kind of uh, opening preamble. This is because they never enter into games of relation and transcendence, nor results from processes of breaking or cutting and synthesis, uh, like cut, recut, and overcut. Um, In French, uh, coupure is both uh, break or cut. So... Uh, the translators use cut, we use break, that are themselves games of power. The part is a priori, but a transcendental or real a priori. Minorities must be parts, not just a priori, but transcendental or real, coming before wholes or sums, as well as before the ideal and formal type of a priori that Western thought normally attributes to such wholes. Form and synthetic transcending towards itself Thus, bringing the universal or the a priori to such a power that it can henceforth claim to contain the manifold and the differential, assuming in its own way the infinite labor and jouissance of individuation. So this is like a very interesting question here. Uh, The invention of minorities as an a priori that is itself real corresponds to the dissolution of the illusion at the foundation of the philosophical empire of the world. Very dramatic language. No surprise. The illusion that the individuation of people, the fusion and reciprocal determination of the state and subjects, for example, is true minoritarian individuation. In reality, the individual is before individuation. They are its true real a priori. Individuation is an impossible task. That's a very profound and weird way of thinking. Yeah, because you think of individuation as a process by which one is able to like become who they are. Rather, one is one rather one is in one before they are in the world, before they are in being, before they are like broken into by the world. So it's it's something of a, 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 a change of terrain, let's say. And one needs to like rethink about these 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 ways of thinking because they are axiomatic in their own way. It's kind of like Scotus and Heidegger, like on their heads. Uh, very, yeah, disorienting. Even yeah, no, but there seems to be a link that that seems like an in, in, implicit rejection of the idea of like Heidegger's throneness and so on, right? Um, exactly. We're always yeah. already in the world in relations to others, in relation to tools, etc. Um, and that well, going against the entire idea, right? Absolutely, absolutely. 
so one of the ways I've been trying to explain this to myself, and I guess maybe this is if this if this does match up at all, it may help the, the listeners somewhat, is particularly in relation to my own work on Stirner. And I know Stirner is far too much of a philosopher, really, to, to fully become a non-philosopher. But one of the things he always brings in for me, which I think really links up with this idea of the one, is the the idea of the unique, the idea that you know. He's, his, his thesis more as says, you know, these, these universals, you know, this Feuerbachian humanism, we're not made to serve these universals, these, these essences. Rather, we've already, or we have always already made them. And they are, you know, his, his, his I guess, his attempt at uh, non-philosophy, I guess, is really his moment of the non-concept, which is the unique one. The one which functions as a, an axiomatic presupposition through which one enjoys oneself and which one is uh, not 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 a not the human being the universal which we're always striving towards but a human being who you know he says you know i assume myself and i only ever consume my assumption as the unique this irreducible uh, oneness and i'm wondering if this is, is this a good way possibly to sort of hint at what larrell's getting at instead of helping some people who are a bit a bit more deeper in the, the philosophical side of oneness to to, to get to get around i, I know larrell is a big fan of Sterner, but <laughs> Well, I think I've mentioned to you previously that um, the idea that the idea that like the the correlation between Stirner and Laurel is is I understand the uh, the desire to see that like connection. However, Laurel notes, <laughs> uh, and I've translated this portion from uh, this the book. That like people will see in the notion of the ego that he uses, the ego in uh, theory of strangers. So this is, I don't know if it's the ego uh, in uh, the Stirner translation in French, but like whatever the case may be, I don't know where he's getting his source from. It's it, one may see that the ego is this half Rousseauian, half Stirnerian residue, but this is a problem for Laurel, precisely because the idea of like this um uh this approach to the philosophical decision so this is another term i had did not mention yet philosophical decision is the process by which one is coextensive with uh the uh philosophical universals this is the real decision over the real it's a decision that is carried out over other thoughts let's say science or other disciplines uh ethics aesthetics religion, um, uh, politics, all these kinds of things, right? Or it's a, f- a decision over itself. So um, for Stirner, this sort of like decomposition of like the philosophical decision is not what Laura Wells looking to do. We were not in the philosophical decision because the ego that he's talking about is pre-philosophical, which doesn't mean uh, dogmatic, Right. Like it, it doesn't mean uh, this kind of like Heideggerian, like uh, I'm going back to the origin of things kind of like thing. Rather, it's like I am who I am without having to enter into these kinds of relations in the first place. Um, and no, no philosophy can determine that. The, the dissolution that Stirner kind of introduces is a decomposition of the philosophical decision and not something that exists prior to it. And this kind of uh, relationship, it's in uh, Theory of Strangers, so it's untranslated yet, but I do have it on my blog. So I will, 
hint at that to to let people know that it's on the blog somewhere. Uh, <laughs> well, I would like to transition to what might be our final topic uh, today, depending on how long it goes. But I want to talk about the notion of philosophy as the capital form of thought. And I've extracted a short excerpt from the essay that we looked at from the Urbanomic uh, collection of essays from Decision to Heresy. Then I'll give like a, a very short explication of how I read it, and then you can correct me. <laughs> Right. So uh, Laruel says, we will say that capitalism or a capital form is not a historico social formation or a particular mode of production, but the mode of universal production demanded by non Marxism as determined by it in the last instance. Capitalism or the capital form will be the most universal logic possible for economico historico social phenomena, as the philosophy form was that according to which. Every thought or form of knowledge is philosophizable, suspended along with the all or whole by non-philosophy. Indeed, every economico-social historical phenomenon is a phenomenon of capitalism. And so I think maybe the most salient portion of that, at least in my view, was that thought in any form seems to be, in the last instance, subordinated or subjugated by philosophical axioms or the activity of philosophy or whatever that might mean in a way that the creative act of thinking seems destined always to be deterritorialized and re-territorialized by the concept of philosophy. Is that what Laruel's trying to say there? And, and maybe you could just say more about what the capital form of thought means for him. This, this portion of the book is... Uh, describing um, what he would call the principle of sufficient economy or universal capitalism. So the, it, this kind of like phraseology is to kind of think uh, philosophy and capitalism as fused together. But the idea of philosophy as the capital form of thought goes way back into the 90s. And I just kind of want to highlight this in a way. Um from the the early nineties uh, uh, book, Antanka uh, Un, or people like to translate it as "in as much as one." I prefer "as one," or just simply "non philosophy explained to philosophers," just to kind of like uh, you know get to the the Althusserian point, or non philosophy for, for philosophers. Really, whatever the case may be, it's a book uh, that hasn't been translated yet. Um, Laurel writes there, philosophy is the capital within thought, the capital form of our general relations to the world, a generalized autonomous form of socioeconomic capital. It is impossible to struggle ag against capital in general in the restrained or broadened sense by means that are drawn from it, by means that are philosophical or neighbors to the philosophical. They are. I could be. They could be political or ethical. It is impossible in general to struggle against capital, which is the whole of possible struggle. It is impossible to struggle against philosophy, philosophy being the whole of uh, all of possible mastery, the universal master. So, what Laura Wells trying to figure out here is a way in which to struggle through these kinds of materials that it's drawing from without it re-entering back into the same system that is being oriented. And as I described 
earlier, this kind of like coextensivity, this unity of contraries with the world, I would argue is something that, um, you know, Marx is talking about in Capital towards the end, where he describes how Capital is arriving into the world, coming dripping from head to toe, from every pore with blood and dirt. And I want uh, listeners to think about this in relation to philosophy. Um, because it's not just like this immaterial thought, whatever, uh, that exists in the ether or in books or in disciplines in the schools or whatever. It is kind of like an ideological force. It is using these universals to kind of affect us, to make us think that we are one with them. And this is no different from the the kind of way in which you describe, Craig, here from introduction to non-Marxism, that every phenomenon is a phenomenon of capital. Every phenomenon is a phenomenon of philosophy. And this is the problem. If we are to think of these kinds of things as the, the, uh, the actual structuring principle of our lives, how do we rebel against it? And this is where the, the pure heresy comes into play, I believe, because it allows for us to think about these kinds of transformations of the world that are not, um, that are not going to repeat the same cycle that came before. So if we are to use Delizian language of like a deterritorialization, reterritorialization, what would be um, a heretical absolute deterritorialization that is determined in the last instance by the human? This is what pure heresy looks to kind of like describe, let's say. I'm wondering how this differs. I mean, I, I can see one difference right off the bat, but I'm thinking once again about Nietzsche. Will has in, in, in our little side comments here, you know, the discussion of the Dionysiac unity in the sense that, you know, I'm thinking of the birth of tragedy here again, where the the concept of philosophy as we have it today could be said to be a derivative of a kind of resentment, a, um, a raging against life. Um, an abandoning an, an abandonment of tragedy uh, on it, on certain terms in favor of um, a kind of thinking that has produced the sort of universals that have become the capital form of thought and so we could probably say that over time uh, philosophy not only as an activity or enterprise but as a history um, has further articulated those universals and and sort of fleshed out the field of things in such a way that it perhaps preempted any other kind of way of thinking about things. And so I'm wondering is like, would Nietzsche's uh, Dionysianism here be um, a, a kind of radical praxis in thought? Is Laruel thinking something differently? Because clearly we're not becoming Dionysian in the sense of becoming an ubermensch or an overman or, or going beyond the everyday, but there's a way of embodying thought in a way that's perhaps more ordinary? Or am I, am I going too far with Laruel's concepts here? Uh, I'm hoping in that sort of like mass of, uh, of thoughts that you can sort of find the root of, of, of what I'm getting at. So I won't say that you're going and taking Laruel's concepts and trying to bring them into like uh, uh, territories of uh, unknown, unknown territories, right? I think that like this is this is kind of normal with regards to like reading Laura well because you want to find some sort of familiarity with regards to reading this work, which is not 
a bad thing, right? Um, in my own work, I refer to like philosophy um, taking on Yukui or even um, Nietzsche's notion of nemotechnics uh, in the genealogy of morals. I refer to philosophy as a cosmo nemotechnics, if I can pronounce that correctly. Um, a, a sense of like uh, what exactly impinged upon like the human experience that we are consist consistently reproducing the things that uh, subjugate us. And this is also related to like Spinoza's uh, 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 notion of servitude. Uh, why, why, uh, why, why, why do we struggle for our own servitude and so on and so forth. So there's, there's a sort of like connection to, um, uh, uh, um, Spinoza, Nietzsche here, and 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 the idea that uh, one has to emancipate themselves from these kinds of conditions in the first place, right? Philosophy can give you um, uh, tools to prepare for you know survival and depth, a uh, death, uh, it, you know, when you are trying to liberate yourself and so on and so forth. Um, the point is rather to treat and use this material pragmatically, because it, what he would call an ordinary pragmatics, Laura Well calls this ordinary pragmatics, it is a use of the material without it re-entering back into some sort of care or concern that is treating who we are as other. Rather, we are treating the material as like something that like it can construct a new concept, a new theory that is determined by us, rather than there's some sort of like reciprocity so is is this dionysian i don't know like i don't know if there's a sort of like uh uh uh, uh intoxicating feeling of um of whatever there's a joke where uh Larwell refers to philosophy uh, like in in an interview that he would be the first one to shoot up philosophy like injecting it in in his in, into his veins um, kind of like an onto junkie, let's say. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that this kind of experience itself is precisely Dionysian in a way. So you, you mentioned the term earlier, the idea of the philosophical decision. And my understanding of it is that um, Lowell's idea is something like this, that philosophy, any philosophy of whatever kind, begins from a kind of a decision about how to split the world up in, into various binaries. Problem is, in a certain way, is that philosophy can't help but explain that in an even more philosophical way, right? And and so it 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 presupposes, in a certain sense, its own validity. But as a result of that, creates a kind of exponentially increasing sort of market almost of philosophies, and they're almost well, firstly they're they're largely incommensurable. Um, I, I've talked to Adam and Will, I know quite a few times about this, but. I, I don't know anyone who spent 30 years in academia writing about Kant, who suddenly became, you know, a Hegelian or something, right? These sort of philosophies sort of proliferate themselves in a certain way. Um, and so one of the things that Lowell seems to be want, wanting us to try and do is firstly pose non-philosophy as a way of, as sort of, in a way, the only way of trying to understand what's going on there in that, that philosophical decision, in a way that doesn't simply participate in that same ongoing process. And the other point I was... I, I took from from this idea of philosophy as a capital form of thought. I, I found again the the, the passage here um, where he talks about this in from this time from non philosophy as heresy, right? Um, 
Uh, he says, beyond particular systems and their reciprocal critiques, which are merely symptoms of this malaise, the true dimension of philosophy and its malaise is that obviously without being a simple capitalist phenomenon in a historical and social sense of this word, it's at least homologous with it and represents capitalism and the consumption of surplus value within the organization of thought. The univocity of the structure of a philosophical decision as market and division of labor allows it, allows it no longer to be abused by these three markets specific claims of originality, seriousness, and popularity. And and he talks about the ways in which um, philosophy becomes kind of institutionalized in various ways, right? And we're um, essentially raised and educated in a certain way, but philosophy just is done, this is how philosophy is done, right? Um, and this is how you should treat literature and mathematics and science. You should divine up in certain ways and understand them in certain ways and write about them in certain ways using particular vocabulary, etc. And so it seems like on the one hand, we have a kind of critique of the philosophy as a kind of set of historical uh, institutions, I suppose you'd say. And on the other hand, you have an, a sort of parallel argument, which seems to be suggesting that perhaps par- partly because of that, philosophy as such takes on the form in a way of the same sort of expanding marketplace as has happened in every other domain of life under capitalism as well. It's this kind of you know, I suppose the idea is that, you know, if you want to talk about universal capitalism, am I right in thinking then that Blauwell's going to say, okay, universal capitalism, yes, but that's, you know, let's include philosophy in that as well then. That's not innocent, so innocent for this either. So, uh, Matthew, thank you for that. Uh, you are absolutely right. And I would also add, you know, from this text as well, just to read from the, uh, the you know, the portion that follows from this kind of uh, approach. Because the, this is re- precisely the universality that Laruel is seeking. Philosophy is, on the one hand, the necessary market of concepts of their more or less reversible exchanges. It is, on the other hand, capital or the division of labor of thought. And finally, that it is the appropriation of this labor of conceptual exchange and production to the profit of its identity, its capital as philosophy. This capture of its own identity uh, through philosophy itself. So this is the philosophical decision. It's deciding upon itself. It's self-valorizing itself, let's say. We shall call capitalism, but also thought world. So as to give it, since it is precisely a question of philosophy, not of history and society, its full extent. The structure of the philosophical decision gives the broadest extent in the real meaning, which develops this cosmopolitical dimension of philosophy as thought world. Okay. Now, this is where the 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 question of like um, the role of philosophy is is pertaining to this, right? It's not just a discipline. It's not just a market. It's not just exchanges. It's not just podcasts. It's not just uh, blog posts. It's not just uh, all these kinds of exchanges that happen. It becomes universal outside of and surpassing its practical institution and geophilosophical limitations. We don't know, Rollerwell writes, any more than we can really explain the universality and necessity of capitalism as describing the same phenomenon of philosophy. But with regards to this, and I'm going to continue reading here, an important theoretical step along the path of this explanation is taken when Marx discovers the correlation of the universal commodity structure and a division of labor that spans history. But I think this is specific to capitalist history more than all of history, right? Can't say history too core for specifically uh, how capitalist society operates. 
Perhaps it is possible to take a similar step within philosophy. When we note that it has essentially the same internal macrostructure as capitalism, and that philosophical decision under which we formalize the philosophical gesture is the correlation of a universal structure of exchange between notions and a divided unity that participates in exchange, yet exceeds and appropriates it. So one of the key things that I also want to highlight here is that capitalism does not necessarily precede philosophy nor vice versa, right? Like we're not talking about like this kind of historical, transhistorical claim of, uh, uh, of philosophy. Because he writes, it matters little which generated which or which is traced from the other. Rather, philosophy is this capital form. But it's not all the philosophy. It's specifically passing onto these limits, right? It's the existing conditions of philosophy. And how do we transform that? You have to transform these kinds of approaches in new ways that are no longer philosophical. And I could tell that there's some sort of frustration with this because it's like, I know how frustrating it could be <laughs> because it's like, we haven't carried that out. Larwell's just describing the approaches rather than what is to be done. But for me, this both this passage and, and the stuff you've added there get to the heart of it for me. Um, and it's the thing that um, really has stood out to me in Larwell um, because it's been this it's been a question in my head for years now, actually, the ways in which, um, to an extent, and maybe, maybe I'm being unfair, but um, a lot of philosophy appears to be, you, you could compare it to walking through a supermarket, um, and each one will try to, you know, sell its particular product to you, and it'll be, well, this this one grants you individualism, this one grants you, you know, collectivism, but with still retains the individual, this one grants you, you know, moral freedom, this one gives you, all the rest of it, right? Um, and it's just like ongoing proliferation of like of of, of a commodity form, in, it, which circulates and expands, and therefore gets revalorized over and over again, constantly expanding um, the marketplace as such as well. Um, and they're utterly incommensurate, right? And you you can't really, you know, I, people have claimed many times that you know I've disproven Hume, I've disproven Kant, I've disproven Hegel, I've disproven Marx, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They never die. It just produces more critiques, which valorizes the same process again, right? So I, I've been sort of searching for a, a kind of um, way of thinking about that for a long time, and it's one of the things that has definitely stood out to me from Lowell. But on that note, I want, if I can, to um, put uh, a possible critique of Lowell's um, position. And although I, I didn't flag up that I was going to be talking about this in advance, I think you will be prepared for it because I'm, I'm drawing this from an exchange that you had on, on your blog. It's on copyright um, by Jacob uh, von Jacob van Geest. Jacob van Geest, yeah. So one of the problems we've discussed in the previous recording um, and elsewhere is that I mean, you, you personally feel this frustration with Lowell, but he's sort of endlessly writing prefaces, right? Um, he sort of has this idea about how we might go about thinking about, I don't know, a non-Marxism or a, non, a non-ethics, etc. But then doesn't actually produce for non-ethics or whatever, right? Um, and one of the critiques um, raised in this in this post, and I was hoping you'd be able to sort of um, explain your you know your position on, is that um, this this is possibly just built straight baked straight into what into Lowell's project, right? Um, that the idea of a of thought outside of philosophy can't really be done, and in that sense, to argue to call for a kind of non philosophical thought 
reduces him to only being able to write these prefaces because the moment he wants to actually go and write the non-ethics, etc., he's plunged straight back into philosophical thought, and that renders his project, you know, uh, inconsistent with its with its foundational um, principles. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you, you you've you've read this and you've had thoughts on it, and especially as I know it's a sort of a a personal frustration that you, you've sort of sometimes found with LIOL. What's, what's your, uh, your, your thoughts on that? I really appreciate this question. It's something that like uh, both Jacob and I have kind of talked about as well. Jacob is a colleague of mine at my, uh, my school and we're, we've written things together. And one of the things that he is constantly worrying about is what's the positive project? What does it look like? What does non-philosophy do? Like, you know, these are the questions that I always ask myself as well when I'm writing my thesis and 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 uh, like positioning myself in terms of like continuing the work. Um, one of the things that I find completely difficult with the existing scholarship of non-philosophy is that this is mostly anglophone rather than francophone really is that we're letting we're 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 relying on Laura well to legitimate our criticisms of existing fields and not doing with Laura well what he is seeking to do and so like this is something that i'm finding as like a, a frustration with regards to the work that is to be done because Laura well inaugurates these critiques Right, like there's a you know a critique of the philosophical decision, um, a theory of it, and what we could do. The positive project is then to mutate these these materials towards that end of human determination, right? Like determination in the last instance. But what does that look like? You know, like there's no answer to like what that looks like, and instead we get um, literature. Uh, that repeats what Laura is doing in settings that do not really legitimate uh, this kind of inventive approach. It's actually Laura well is doing it for you. You are not carrying out the means to like do non-philosophy. You are regressing back into some sort of like disciplinary kind of logic. You're not maintaining uh, this kind of like radically autonomous discipline all to itself. And Laura Well makes no mistake, and by saying like you know the first non philosophers are always you know uh, impregnated by like the philosophical prejudices that they've they've started out in. Um, the problem is is that like Laura Well is seeking to invent the conditions of invention. Now that sounds very strange because the the, the way in which you're what I'm saying it is like why would we need to invent conditions to invent? Because the current conditions don't allow for us to invent. They inhibit us. They prevent us from actually uh, carrying out transformations upon these kinds of situations that we're currently in. So Laruel does this first step of inventing the conditions of invention. But what are these conditions that we need to invent? I would argue, and this is this is this is particularly my own kind of work is that you find this in Stiegler. Uh, Stiegler notes that borrowing is a phenomenon of invention and invention is a, borrow, a phenomenon of borrowing. You borrow in order to invent, 
And what we need to do is no longer have to borrow. Because if we're borrowing instead of actually presenting some sort of novelty into the world, you are repeating the same kind of conditions that kind of got us stuck here in the first place. And this is the problem with Laurel is because he's a borrower. He is borrowing from all these different approaches like Marxism, Nietzsche, Heidegger, Simondon, Deleuze, Derrida. It doesn't matter what the language he's using, right? Like it could be Deleuzean language. It could be Kantian language. It could be Heideggerian language. He's borrowing that language. He is not reducible to these kinds of approaches. These kinds of things require us to rethink our relation to thought. And if we are to invent not only the future of thought, we should think about inventing the future. Thinking about our relations in a way that actually transforms where we're at. And if thought, if thought is one thing that constitutes our everyday experience, our meaning, our sense, experience, and existence, what is to be done? And in the face of that, The future is yours, future philosophers, and thanks again for joining us for another episode. Do you want more from us? Well, become a patron, find us on Patreon, and subscribe. Subscribe and become a member of our reading group. Also, you can find us on Twitter. In the meantime, stay safe, and we will see you during the next episode.